This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Welcome, dear parishioners, to the Sunday Salmon with me, David Jameson. The chances are you had better things to do this week, but journalists were transfixed by something called the National Conservative Conference in London, billed as an attempt to revivify a conservative agenda, flagging after 13 years of Tory rule that have failed to solve Britain's underlying social and economic problems. Instead, it demonstrated that thinkers on the right have succumbed to the strange mix of high drama and triviality that we call the culture war. Most of the speakers at NatCon were gum-flapping chancellors who trade in anodyne observations and bovine insults. The cartoon narrative historian David Starkey made a fool of himself, as he can be expected to at every public appearance. Melanie Phillips was, dependably, the rictus grin of suburban British idiocy, proof that you can be so middle-class that you turn into a peasant. Speaking of rural affairs, the Tory party released a paddock of horses onto the conference floor. Each MP and cabinet member I saw managed to combine dull, spiritually ugly and uncomprehending in different combinations. Big brains were largely absent, but so was charisma. Where was Nigel Farage, by the way? What made him want to dodge this occasion? True, he's an arch-economic liberal, but so were a great many of the speakers. Some, making eulogies to Thatcher and Reagan, had apparently missed the memo on what the conference was supposed to be about a post-libertarian reboot for right-wing ideas combining economic and social communitarianism, that dread political synthesis constantly being threatened and feared, but never materialising. Other speakers, like Michael Gove, even warned against any drive towards populism. NatCon was, he must have thought, a very un-British kind of conservatism. It's all rather vulgar, immodest and intrusive. Of course, the Tory party has never really been the home of moderate, warm beer and cricket grounds anti-politics that its hagiographers swoon over. But nor, in recent years, has it tended to hector women for not having enough babies and without an ounce of charmingly repressed seaside humour. We are looking at neither Blackpool Pleasure Beach nor the home county's fete, but Bible Belt on the Danube. In response to the conference... Many on the cultural war left reanimated a favourite argument. NatCon proved the necessity of the cultural war itself. Should we not meet with and defeat the National Conservatives and their fellow travellers in the battle of ideas, we will end up being persecuted by them in more desperate circumstances. The oppressive atmosphere of anxiety that accompanies the cultural war, the permanent feeling we have reached some decisive moment in a contest between stark civilizational alternatives is present in this argument just as it was at the conference itself. It would be difficult to overemphasize the similarities at both ends. My argument here is not that of the hand-wringing centrist scribe, that populist left and right are marked by the same political militancy and commitment to rigid dogma. Quite the opposite. Culture war left and right share a gesture to radical critique, subversive aesthetics, heated rhetoric and righteous conflict. But at the core of both worldviews is a small-c conservative politics, which is to say establishment liberalism. Indeed, all the most dangerous ideas discussed at the conference are already government policy. Over the great questions of the hour, 
the average NatCon speaker and the average critic of the event share a politics in common. To take just one example, the war in Ukraine. The most important issue of our time and then some went little mentioned. Anything said would have been readily agreed to by the culture war left. And that doesn't make for a very good culture war. In a sense, it is agreement itself which generates the heat. But there is more than the narcissism of small differences in play. Culture war reflects the desire for agency and meaningful conflict in the absence of real political contestation with clear, decisive consequences. Those of us who reject the culture war are often charged with stuffiness or philistinism, rejecting the real, current tensions in society for idealised versions of struggle. Culture may not be downstream from politics, goes the argument, but it still has real significance, and it is here, now. There's a failure of terminologies here. The culture war label is, of course, a hand-me-down from a past generation. A better title for the phenomenon has been awarded by Anton Jaeger, who refers instead to hyperpolitics. In the hyperpolitical mode we inhabit, everything is politicised, especially popular culture. But much that characterised political contestation in the 20th century, particularly the construction of mass political organisation, remains elusive. Instead, we are fixated by the fleeting, faddy and peripheral. Moral, lifestyle and aesthetic questions dominate this rabid political transference. Indeed, a scroll through NatCon lecture titles will demonstrate that almost all of the chatter is instruction on how people ought to conduct their own private lives, how they should raise their children being a particularly intense obsession. Last week, this conference was an urgent call to arms for the right, the beginning of a revolution against woke cultural hegemony and so forth. For the left, it reeked of impending fascism. But for all the drama and diagnoses, it will be almost completely forgotten within days by partisans on all sides. The effect of hyper-politicisation is of course reinforced by the polarisations it helps to foster, and above all, by the overarching sense of powerlessness, the fear of defeat, the mood of panic. Dire warnings are constantly issued, wallowed in, then swiftly forgotten, as the next Hollywood film, public statement, celebrity affair or micro-controversy takes hold. There will have been intelligent conservatives at NatCon, I've no doubt. People can be fruitfully wrong about the world. They could have had insightful things to say and serious challenges to make of complacent ideas or institutions if only they were surrounded by a political culture more conducive to this. As it is, they are locked in dubious battle with equally confused opponents. All victims to the end, all cowering and shrieking at shadows in a time where authority is unpopular and unsought. I'm talking about the right here. But I'm obviously talking about all too many on the left as well, caught in the same blinkered conflict, choosing political priorities based on what that law over there are thinking and doing. I finish with a reminder of times when the right still had something to say, or at least knew how to turn a phrase. Here's a famous aphorism from Friedrich Nietzsche. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss the abyss will gaze back into you. Hyperpolitics is an abyss. Don't get sucked in. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. 
we really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott.